Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. It was Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish evangelist, who wrote, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. What a person is in the solitude of their own house, praying from their heart to the Lord, that is the mark of a person. People do things in public all the time. They put on airs, they put on a mask, so to speak. They act away before other people to convey what they believe about God towards others, but that's not the real person. The real person, the real window into a person's heart, the real demonstration of who a person is, is how they act before the Lord when only the Lord sees them. You know, when people act away in public, that's for your benefit. You know that, right? Somebody's acting a certain way in front of you. You are the intended recipient of that. But the Lord knows the heart. And so the heart is truly on display without the filters of others when a person is alone before the Lord. Last week we saw in verse 6, Jesus said, don't pray out in public like everybody. Go into your room, your closet, as some translations say. And of course, the Jews didn't have a closet in their house, but it'd be an inner room, a room you can't even see from the windows. Go there. And only the Lord can see into that room. So he knows who you really are in prayer. Your social media posts don't define you. They're done for other people. The bumper stickers on your car don't define you. They're there explicitly for other people. But how you are with the Lord and him alone, praying in solitude, that's what defines you. I'll never forget reading a book on prayer many, many, many years ago that the author described being at a conference and in the hotel uh, room the night before the conference began, he happened across the conference speaker who was praying on his knees in the hallway of the hotel and he eavesdropped on his prayer and that influenced the author of this book on prayer the rest of his life to see how sober this man was and to eavesdrop on his prayer before God. What a hero of the faith. And I just stumbled over that so big time reading it and I thought, who prays on their knees in the hallway of a hotel. That's very odd. (laughs) Who's that for? Who's that for? Well, your relationship with the Lord is fully on display when it's by yourself and he sees it. I mean, you can just ask yourself some basic questions. Do you pray when you're by yourself? Do you pray when the only one who would hear your prayer is the Lord? That's where your prayer life is on display. That's where your theology is on display. So we ought to pray simply, to pray quietly, to pray privately, to let a request be made known to God. That's the language of the Bible. Well, here, as we start this series on prayer, the first two verses we're looking at this morning, they are 
a negative approach to prayer. Here's where Jesus says, do not do this. In fact, in this little section here, the most recurring phrase is, don't be like these people. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like them. So Jesus starts his instruction on prayer by telling us how not to pray. It reminds me of those clickbait articles that says, you know, how to get your college application rejected. You know, an admissions counselor says, these are the signs they look for before they reject. And you're like, oh, I'm applying for college. Click, I want to read that. This is how Jesus begins. How to have your prayer not heard. Written by the person who hears all the prayers. Jesus in his deity is the recipient of prayers. And so when he says, hey, here's, here's three quick ways to get me to hang up the phone. You should pay attention. In fact, I'll give that an outline for you this morning. Three bad methods of prayer. This would not be a best-selling book title, you know. Everybody would buy a book, Three Good Methods of Prayer. Here's three bad methods of prayer. Three wrong approaches to prayer. And when you see an outline like that, your first instinct might be to say, that sounds kind of judgy. Who are you to judge somebody's prayers? To which I'll just say, first of all, it's Jesus who says this, and he can judge prayers. He receives them. Secondly, it reminds me a bit of a prayer class I had in seminary. My first semester in seminary, we had to take a class called Prayer and the Pastor. And the, the professor assigned us, our assignment was we had to pray an hour a day, all semester. And we had to turn in a written report authenticating that we did pray for an hour a day. And we had to provide a little one-page summary of our prayers for that week. Now, this was like an old school professor. I'm talking elbow patches on the jacket, Dr. Roscoff. He's in heaven now. But an old school professor who uh, like still used a typewriter. And he would take off points if you didn't have two spaces after a period because that's typewriter etiquette. Like, I don't even, I haven't seen a typewriter in my life, but he had one in his office, and that was that. Well, he was grading our prayer requests. And my first assignment, I'm like cranking out the one-page thing. Right before class starts, I'm printing it, and one of my roommates who was ahead of me in seminary sees me. He's like, what are you doing? I'm printing my assignment for Dr. Ruskup. And he goes, oh, you poor soul. You have no idea what you're getting into right now. You're printing it right before class starts. I'm like, it's, pray, it's my prayer life. Nobody can critique this. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. When I got that assignment back in my mailbox, that paper bled. It had so much red ink on it. Circling this. You would pray for that question mark? No, this is a bad request. Pray this instead. And I'm like, yowzers. <laughs> well, here Jesus is grading the prayer assignment. And he says, this is how not to pray. Don't be like this. The reoccurring word, homoousius, uh, means of like substance of something. That's the word that's used in this passage. Don't have like substance with the Gentiles. Now that's a problem for us because we're Gentiles. <laughs> so Jesus says, you want to pray, don't pray like the Gentiles. And you're like, hello. <laughs> I got bad news, Lord. That's all I got to work with. <laughs> well, the point of comparison here isn't your ethnic identity. The point of comparison here is your method of prayer. And so let me give you the three ways Jesus says not to pray. First is repetition. Don't pray with repetition. Saying the same prayer request over and over 
and over and over again. Now this, of course, is a slap at the Jews when Jesus says this, because earlier, we looked at this last week in verse 5, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. He's describing the synagogue leaders. Uh, They're on the street corners. They're praying in front of the synagogues to be seen by others, Jesus says. And here he compares that in verse 7 to praying like the Gentiles. That's the worst insult you can give to a synagogue leader. Like, hey, nice prayer, Rabbi. It sounds like what you would hear at the temple of Dionysus. It sounds like one of the prayers to the Roman pantheon. Very articulate. That's where Jesus begins. He says, when you pray like them, you're heaping up words. Look at verse 7. When you pray, don't heap up these phrases. It's putting them in piles at your front door. Putting them in piles. We have kind of a, a rule in our house that if something needs to go upstairs, you can leave it at the bottom of the stairs. And the next time somebody goes upstairs, they'll take it. Or somebody needs to go downstairs, leave it at the top of the stairs. And next time somebody goes downstairs, they'll take it. And that's, that's a great rule in practice, man, because you don't want to just walk up the stairs or drop off a pair of socks. Just leave them there. But what, I mean, have you met a person before? I mean, what happens? There's, you can't get to the stairs. That's what our prayer requests are like when they're just repetition. They're piling things up at God's door, just putting them in a big pile right at God's door. And Jesus says, God's not going to pick those up. You don't pile up your prayer requests at his door. You don't repeat the same thing over and over and over again, thinking, hey, I'm playing the odds here. The more times I say it, the more likely God is the answer, right? It's, it's simple mathematics. If there's a 5% chance God's going to answer my prayer, I pray that thing 5,000 times, my odds can only increase. Well, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not this idea that if you say it enough times, God will be forced to act. I remember going to Bhutan and ministering in Bhutan. And the Bhutan means kingdom of Buddha. This is true in, in Buddhism. You know, in Buddhism, there's not even a concept of a personal God. There's no person who receives prayer requests, but everybody prays. You understand that, right? Everybody prays. A Buddhist even prays. Bhutan is covered with these flags, these prayer flags that uh, are all over the place. And they're like those grand opening flags that you see in the United States at like the Peruvian chicken places. You know, those triangle flags that go down. And only in Bhutan, you write your prayers on those. And you put them up on a banner. And they're designed so that when the wind blows, the flag twirls and the, the prayer wraps around the cord and then when the wind pauses it, it unwraps and when it blows again it wraps up again. So these things stream all over the canyons and over the valleys Bataan's very mountainous. They're, they're all over they're like telephone wires. They're everywhere and the idea is you string them like that because as the wind blows by them and they twirl the prayer is taken up in the wind and the more it twirls the more the prayer is taken up and the more it unflurls the more the prayer is, is recycled and given over and over and over again and it's this idea that the more it spins the more the prayer goes that's this repetition this heaping up of the phrases I'll say it over and over and over again and God will answer it in Catholicism, the idea that you pray and you, you light the candle. You guys know where the candle is lit. I'm sure many of you do. There's the idea that as long as the candle is burning, the prayer is ascending. The prayer is before God or whichever particular saint it is offered to, as long as the candle is, is alight. And you can even buy the candles at the, 
basilicas or the, the churches where those prayers are often offered. And, you know, a little bit of money will get you a little short candle and a lot of money will get you a, a big candle. And there's the idea that the bigger the candle, the more the prayers before God. You know, Lifehack, the dollar store, sells those the big versions of those, those candles. <laughs> but the idea is as long as the flame is burning, the prayer is before its intended recipient. And Jesus says that's just heaping up phrases. It's a personless prayer. It's not praying to a person because a person would hear you and respond. It's more a mathematical thing. It's more a manipulation thing. It's a personless prayer. It sounds like logically contradictory, but it's almost like an atheistic prayer. I was at a board meeting for the Masters University and we had a guy who described himself as an atheist there. And we began our board meeting in, in prayer. When we were done praying, he said, that's exactly what I do. And we're like, oh really? Tell us more. And he said, when you guys pray, you're praying to a higher power outside of yourself, above you. When I pray, I'm praying to a higher power inside of me. But it's the same thing. Okay. <laughs> Notice that logic, even the atheist prays. It's this appeal to something, somewhere, someone, even myself. And the more frequently I do it, the more inclined you would be to answer. It's sound and fury signifying nothing. It's the repetition of an empty prayer. Zero plus zero plus zero plus zero plus zero equals. I mean, that's the problem with this kind of prayer. It's heaping up, Jesus says, these empty, empty words. You don't need to repeat your prayer over and over and over again for God to hear it. Somebody once asked me, would you pray for my son? He's got leukemia, doesn't look good. Would you pray for him? And of course I said, yes. And then the person said, we're also asking the Mormons that we know, the Catholics we know. I even have a Muslim coworker. We're asking him to pray. If we get somebody from every religion, all of our bases are covered. I mean, that's a statement of desperation, isn't it? It's somebody who's desperate to have a prayer answered. Desperate. And I think the more it's prayed, the more likely God would be to answer it. And, you know, when I tag the Buddhist prayer flags in it or the atheist praying in himself or the candles or covering all the bases, it's very easy for us to go, oh, so, so glad I don't pray that way. But we fall into this trap so many times, don't we? We think, man, if I can get 20 of my friends to pray for this, then God will hear. It's a prayer request, mind you. Of course, I'm not gossiping. It's a prayer request. But it needs to be amplified to as many people as possible because then certainly the Lord will hear. If I get 1,000 people to share this on Facebook, that they're praying for it, then the Lord has to answer. That's the same kind of vain repetition. You know, if you pray for something, the Lord hears. The Lord knows 
what you need before you even pray for it. Now, sometimes our prayers just can become a spectacle. God's not drawn to a parade. God's not more inclined to answer something. It's not democratic. God doesn't order his prayer requests. Uh, you know, it's like the person at the elevator button who keeps... Like, that's not the way the circuits work. You know, if it's pressed once, like, no, no, no. I talked to an elevator guy once who said, if you press it 20 times, it hits a different circuit. That's not true. Prayer isn't like that. You bring it before the Lord. The Lord hears and the Lord knows. Now, people often bring up Luke 18, where Jesus told the parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And it becomes the parable of the dishonest judge, Remember, and it's the judge who won't listen to the, the widow. And so the widow goes to him night and day, night and day, night and day, night and day. And finally the judge is like, okay, already, even though I'm a dishonest judge, <laughs> even though I don't fear God and don't like widows, I'm definitely giving her what she wants. So she goes away. So doesn't that mean that you should pray all the time? Well, yes, it does mean you pray all the time, but it doesn't mean you're manipulating God like the widow had to manipulate the judge because it's called the parable of the dishonest judge. In a parable that Jesus calls the parable of the dishonest judge, the point of comparison is not God to the dishonest judge. You understand that? Jesus is not comparing God to a dishonest judge. He's, it's a parable of contrast where Jesus is saying this dishonest judge needs to be persuaded. God doesn't need to be persuaded. God hears and God knows, and God's not distracted to something else. You know how it might be at home. Your kid comes up to you and says, hey, it's lunchtime. I'm hungry. Like, all right, I'll make lunch in a minute. And then you go about your day. You're doing, and then your, your kid comes back 15 minutes later. Uh, Dad, I'm still hungry. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna go, I'll go make lunch right now. And then I'm distracted again. You can tell Deidre was out of town this last week by this illustration. I'm distracted again. Now it's like 30 minutes. Hey, Dad, we're still hungry. Oh, yeah, I was ma I'm making lunch right now. And I, I need a little help along the way. God is not like that. God doesn't forget what he was doing. He doesn't forget that you're hungry. His knowledge is, is constant and before him. So he doesn't have to be manipulated. Now, you can pray. Somebody asked me between services, such a good question. Well, I have an uh, a, a, a unsaved family member, and I want to pray for them all the time. Are you saying that's, that's wrong or whatever? No, because what you will find when you are praying the same thing over and over again, you will find, even in your mind, it's the same prayer for 20 years. You will find that your prayers do, in fact, change because effective prayer is working on you. You'll maybe the first year or so you're praying the same thing over and over again you're praying you know lord heal this disease heal this disease heal this disease year two you're praying lord would you sanctify me through this disease sanctify me this disease year three you're praying god help me value godliness over my what's going on in my health you're going to see your prayers are constantly actually reflecting your changing because you're changing reflecting your changing and growing heart that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the heaping up of words before God. Like if I repeat and repeat and repeat my prayer, then he will be forced to answer. And the language that's used, then he'll be forced to hear it. Like God doesn't hear it the first time. Like the prophets of Baal. Remember they're praying to, to Baal and Baal doesn't answer. And so they start lancing themselves and prancing around and dancing. Thinking now we'll get Baal to hear. And Elijah's, Elijah's mocking them. Remember, he, what, maybe he went on vacation. Maybe you should cry louder. 
That's the problem. But God is not like that. What the contrast with Elijah's prayer. Remember Elijah poured water on the altar and then sat down and prayed, God, you got me into this mess. You better get me out. <laughs> it's basically Elijah's prayer. So don't pray through repetition. Secondly, don't pray through recitation. Saying somebody else's words. Reciting prayer like it's a formula. This is the idea that here's a prayer that works. So let me say these words to get what I want. Recitation usually is a window into a heart that wants something, that needs something. It's really a heartless prayer. It's prayer using words that aren't connected to your heart. This is the, I mean, the rosary would be a great example of this from the world. Here's a memorized prayer, arguably the most prayed prayer ever. It's a prayer that's memorized, and you, you actually repeat it, and it corresponds to your need. You're, you can even be assigned it in penance. You confess a sin, and this could be a, a consequence of that sin would be pray the rosary, or a number of them, five of them, ten of them, one a day. It's different words, and it becomes formulaic. It's the formula to get this or the formula to get that. Recitation, praying somebody else's prayers. This is one of the reasons I don't do the sinner's prayer. Every now and then I'm asked, why don't you recite the sinner's prayer at the end of services or something? Because the sinner's prayers, that's words somebody else says. You don't need to get saved by repeating this formula. And then if you say it, just right, and you really mean it, then you're saved and don't let anyone ever question that because you said this prayer. I mean, that's just not in the Bible. That's somebody else's words that you think you're saved if you pray them and you really, 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 really mean it. As an early Christian, I was, you know, new in the faith. I'm listening to Christian radio all the time. And, you know, like every hour, the Christian station in my town would have the sinner's prayer end of the hour and repeat it. If you want to become a Christian, repeat this prayer. And man, I got saved a hundred times. Because <laughs> I was like, maybe it didn't work last time. This time I really, really, man, I got saved listening to jars of clay over and over and over and over and over again. Recitation. Martin Luther said that for him, the Reformation was predominantly about how people pray. And when I read that line, I found that line in a Joel Beakey book on the Puritans in prayer. I came across that line and it struck me weird. Like the first time I read it, I thought that's not really right. The Reformation is about the gospel and about justification by faith alone and rescuing the, you know, the, the gospel from the, the dark ages and all of that, the sacerdotal system. That's what the Reformation was about, not prayer. But the more I read of Luther's teaching on prayer, the more you understand what he's talking about here. Luther's looking at the way the, the prayers worked as a consequence of, of penance or a consequence of sin. And he's realizing what's missing from that whole approach to God is in fact the gospel. The person has sin and they're desperate. They want their sin taken away. They are afraid of hell. They need their sin uh, expiated. They need it you know, expunged from them. They need it taken away from them. 
they need to be absolved of it and they don't know where to go and they're told say this prayer and say it in this way and on these steps and in this closet or in that road and if you do it like this then you can be saved and he gets desperate the person the sinner does and is is doing anything to get his sin removed and he'll say it five times ten times a hundred times but what's in all of that what's missing from all of that is the cross your sin is forgiven by Jesus Christ. And that shapes the way that you pray. I asked a Catholic priest once why it's so common in Catholicism to pray to Mary. And his answer, I've shared it maybe once before here, so it might sound familiar to you, but his, his answer was, you know, imagine a teenager wears holes in his shoes and he needs new shoes. And he can go to dad and ask dad for new shoes, but dad is working all day. Dad's trying to save money and pay rent and buy food and dad's working. And so he receives a request for shoes like a need, like, you know, the baby bird with the mouth open and dad's disinclined. Dad's more likely to say, hey, go get a job yourself. But if you go to mom, mom loves you, and likes your feet. Mom will then go to dad and say, hey, Junior needs shoes. And dad's more inclined to listen to mom than to you. There's a certain logic to that. I mean, at a worldly level, that makes sense. You can see why that would resonate. But what's missing from that is the gospel. What's missing from that is that, you know, you want to fix that analogy. How about this? God has a son. And God gave his son for you. His son died on the cross bearing your sins and rose from the grave offering you new life. And so now when you approach God, you're not approaching God as the son, you know, in need begging for scraps. You're approaching to God in Christ. You're in his only beloved son, his only begotten son. You're in him. And so... Well, the one who didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for your sin, will he fail to give you everything you need once you are in his son? Of course not. Recitation is absent that. Recitation is this idea that I can say it, that I've earned it. And again, recitation, in a sense, it's a shortcut. But if you think about it, it's actually probably harder to memorize somebody else's prayer than it is to just speak from your own heart. What motivates the person who prays these recited prayers? It's probably desperation. It's probably really, really feeling like I need my sins dealt with, or I need my cancer cured, or I need my marriage back together. I'm desperate, I'll try anything. And so you start with that logic. If I do this enough times, the Lord will answer. Some people pray like they're applying for a mortgage. Here's all my debt. Here's my savings account. Here's my projected paycheck for the next 30 years. Hopefully my savings offsets my debt. Hopefully my future income is enough to persuade you to give me what I need now. So Lord, here's my sin, I know about it, but here's all the good things I've done. Does that cancel it out? Hopefully. And now because I need this other extra thing, I pledge to pray this prayer once a week for the rest of my life, where I pledge to, you know, be thoroughly devoted to church. Lord, if you answer this prayer right now, you know I'm a good person, you know I need it. If you answer this prayer, I will go on a mission trip next summer. 
I will go to, I'll be so devoted to Jesus, I'll go to church three times a month for sure. Here on out, Lord, answer my prayer. But that's not, God's not a mortgage broker. God hears your prayer because he knows what you need. You're not trying to wrestle his ears towards you. You're not trying to bend the ear of God by heaping up words on his head or repeating a chant over and over again. And of course, there's danger in this in our world too. Like we're about to preach through the Lord's prayer here over the next few months. And I, I know it might go through some of your minds. Like, hey, if Jesse's teaching the Lord's prayer. Shouldn't we be reciting it at church? And I, you know, it's good to memorize the Lord's prayer. It's good to pray scripture. Scripture is a very good guide to how to pray because it's shaping your prayers along the lines of the Lord's will. But just repeating somebody else's prayer, even if it's Jesus's prayer, that might be good training wheels, but you're going to need to take the training wheels off your bike. I mean, Jesus teaches you the Lord's prayer so that you learn how to pray, not so you repeat the prayer back to him. He knows it already. So it is helpful to learn. It can teach you to pray. What, it's a great outline for prayer. But you want to take it and apply it and use it more than recite it. So first bad method of prayer, repetition. Second, recitation. Third, rambling. Well, some of you felt convicted on that one. <laughs> rambling. Jesus says in verse 7 when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. That word empty phrases it's a great word. One of my favorite Greek words. It's so good, you're, I don't think you're ready for it yet. It's an onomatopoetic word, which means it's a word that sounds like what it means, like buzz in English. Bzz, the word means what it sounds like. There's lots of words like that. It's a fun kind of language phenomena. This is one of those words. It's battle on That's the word. It's basically a made-up word that Jesus makes up here, and he's making fun of the way the Greeks pray in their temples. You know, all the Greek towns have their Greek temples, and they've got their, the Roman pantheon. There's the Greek god or goddess who belongs to that temple, and those gods and goddesses have their own languages. And so for you to pray in that temple or be a good citizen of that town, you have to pray to that god in that language. The problem is that nobody actually knows that language, so it becomes gibberish. It's, it's made up, recited Gibberish, And Jesus says, if you want to pray, don't pray Soda. Don't just make up sounds and direct them to God like God will hear you because you're speaking in tongues. And that is, by the way, essentially what tongues are today. It's practiced in the church. It's some mystery prayer language that you don't know, other people don't know, but it's my prayer language, so God knows it. And yeah, you know, there's a biblical pattern for that kind of prayer. And Jesus says, do not do it. Don't just make up sounds and direct them to God and call it a prayer language. That's what the Romans did in their temple. They had the, that exact system. In fact, in the Roman world, this isn't described in the Bible, but in the Roman world, this is described as erotic prayer. The Greek word is eros. It's that kind of erotic uh, Love, in some way, sometimes that word is translated love, it comes in English better erotic. There's often a sexual connotation to it. And some of those Greek gods were worshipped through sexually deviant acts. And so that language that you would say was 
just gibberish as part of that exercise, but it wasn't always sexually deviant. Some of those temples were still used that so-called erotic language independent of the actual sexual uh, acts. It was just the language you had. You were so overcome with passion, you were speaking words that didn't make sense to you, but God would know them. I love the Holman standard, the Christian standard of the Bible, the way it translates this verse. It says, don't babble like idolaters. What a great rendering of that. Just saying words without meaning, thoughtless prayer. Now, clearly this eliminates what I would say, what's called today speaking in tongues. Next Sunday night, not tonight, but next Sunday night, I'm going to preach a sermon on tongues in the Bible or the gift of tongues, what that really means. That's for next Sunday night. But for now, I just want you to understand this is not the New Testament gift of, gift of tongues, or gift of, which is the gift of languages, spoken languages that had meaning and that people could understand them. That's how languages function today and in the, the church age, in the early church age. But 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4 says this. Somebody who speaks in a tongue, in other words, a, a gibberish language, builds up himself, Paul says. He doesn't edify the church. That's the rest of the verse. The one who speaks in his so-called language, a tongue, builds up himself. Spoiler alert, it's not good to use the church to build yourself up. You're supposed to edify the congregation with your spiritual gifts, not build yourself up. It's the gasping for words. It's the saying the phrase over and over and over again and just making up sounds and saying, yeah, the Lord knows what this means. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14, Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. Meaning my mind's not producing anything. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19, nevertheless in church, I would rather speak five words with my minds than 10,000 words in a tongue. Battle on Gasoda. Heaping up words, heaping them up. But beyond just speaking in tongues, this is the, the idle chatter that can mark our prayers. Praying and here's, Lord, here's seven synonyms for my request. <laughs> After you've, you know somebody like this, they, they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk and they just keep talking. And, you know, 20 minutes into it, you're like, if I were to try to summarize what was just said over the last 20 minutes, I could do it in one sentence. Sometimes people pray like that. Now, I do agree with Billy Graham that the problem of the, the, the church today is prayerlessness. Well, there are those that fall off the other side of the horse and fill the Lord's ears with things that are just rambling, stream of consciousness. Jesus says, the Lord is not inclined to hear you when you're heaping up your words, that is what happens in the Gentile temples. Do not, verse 8 says, do not be like them. So if you're going to summarize all of this, it boils down to this one basic distinction. Here's the most basic distinction. Those kind of prayers, the recitation, the repetition, the rambling, those kind of prayers have as their motivation to get the Lord to hear you. The Christian prayer is rooted in the reality that the Lord already knows you. It's the difference between trying to get God to hear you and rooting your prayer in the reality that he knows you. 
When you're praying, you're not trying to get God to hear your prayer because he already knows what you're going to say before you say it. That's what Jesus says in verse 8. He knows what your, your most deep, passionate, and personal prayer requests. The Lord knows all about it before you even do. So the point of prayer is not to bring something to the Lord's attention. What is the point of prayer? Well, it's rooted in... This is way more than we have time for this morning, what the point of prayer is. But notice that even for this morning, it is rooted in the reality that God knows what you need. God has a plan for all of human history. He has a sovereign and infinite decree established in heaven that all things that transpire in this world happen according to his perfect and predetermined plan. He is sovereign over all things. Prayer does not change the mind of God, but prayer brings you into conformity with the will of God. I've used this analogy before as well, but it is so helpful. Prayer is like the person rowing the boat in the lake. You are not rowing the shore closer to you. You are pulling yourself closer to the shore. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not moving God to you. Prayer is moving you towards God. You pray because God knows what you need. Prayer in that sense is for yourself. It's reminding you, it's don't be anxious, but with, you know, prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Notice it's the antidote to anxiety. You're not supposed to be anxious, so what do you do when you're anxious? You pray to God, and that's not reminding God of what you're anxious about. That's moving your heart closer to God. It's reminding you. Now, prayer is to God. It's communication to God. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, described prayer as a conversation between friends. You should have a free relationship with God while you are talking to him in prayer. God talks back to you through his word and through providence. It's not a conversation among equals. It doesn't use the same medium. You talk to him through prayer. He speaks to you through his word and through providence. And you think, how come he doesn't just talk back to me? Because you're not like him. He's, you know, transcendent and above you. He accommodates himself to you. He brings his word down to you in the book that you can read and understand and apply. And in providence, how he directs his world. And prayer then aligns your heart through God's word with providence. So prayer is bringing you closer to God. People say, well, does prayer work then? Yes, prayer works, but if work is defined as changing God's mind, no, it does not. If work is defined as your own sanctification and participating in what God is doing in the world, prayer absolutely works. I mean, remember Esther? Where Esther was supposed to go to the emperor and then she was going to chicken out. And Mordecai said, listen, you chicken out. Relief and deliverance will rise from a different place. But if you want to partner with what God's doing in this world, you better do it, Esther. That's prayer. God's going to do what God's going to do. You want to be part of it? Pray. How amazing is it to have your prayers answered in this world? It's such joy. And when you see it happen, it like fuels your faith and energizes you. That's what you have when you pray. Martin Luther Ended up, yeah, after a long treatise on prayer, he ended up by saying, listen, the most basic reason to pray is because God tells you to. There's more complicated answers. I can do theological charts and all this and the revealed will and the hidden will of God and all these distinctions. You want to boil it all down to this, though? You pray because God says pray. There. Now, there, that's law. There's gospel that goes with it. There's promise that goes with it. There's a duty of prayer, and the duty produces the blessings in your life. You pray, and even in this passage, Jesus says, pray, the Lord hears your prayer, and he will reward you. There's promises and blessings and rewards that come with it. But all those things are rooted in the fact God already knows what you need. I have had so many people ask me, if God is sovereign, why would I pray? And my answer is always, if God wasn't sovereign, why would you pray? I mean, what do you think you're asking for? 
You're praying to the one person who controls all things. So of course pray. Take off worry, put on prayer. Take off anxiety, put on prayer. Cast your cares on him. Not with vain repetition, not with the recitation of somebody else's words. That doesn't have the effect on the heart. Not with the rambling. But just with the conversation to God. And I would say that the point of this message is basically this. You should pray more but say less. Pray more frequently than you do. Use less words than you do. And you'll be applying this teaching. Let me end with this illustration from the Old Testament. As Samuel saw a contrast, you remember that Samuel was the prophet. God was speaking to Israel through the prophet. Israel wasn't supposed to have a king because God was their king. And if they wanted to hear from God, they would go to Samuel. And Samuel would tell them what the Lord said. And they did not like that. Because all the other armies they were fighting, they had a king with banners and horses and all that. And they're like, we don't have that. We got a prophet. So they fired Samuel to hire a king. And Samuel took it personally. And the Lord told Samuel, don't take it personally. This is two Sam, or 1 Samuel 12. Don't take it personally, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And I'm not going to take it personally, so you shouldn't either. So Samuel quits then. Remember, he gives his farewell speech for Samuel chapter 12, where he tells the Israelites, that's it. Fine, you get your king. Good luck with you. See it in glory, some of you. And on his way out the door, they appealed to him and they say, Samuel, would you pray for us? Oh, what would you do if you were Samuel? Now you want me to pray for you? <laughs> First Samuel 12, 23, Samuel says, Far be it from me that I would sin against Yahweh by not praying for you. It's like, I got to pray for you. You asked me to, I got to pray to you. I got to pray for you. So he goes away. Well, of course, time goes on. And Samuel is supposed to meet Saul for a battle. And they're supposed to, to pray and offer sacrifices on this particular day. Saul doesn't want to wait for Samuel. Do you remember this? Samuel's late. Why is Samuel late? Because he's praying in his closet. Saul is never good for that. Saul, if you're not praying in front of the people who voted for you, then it doesn't even count. Samuel's late because he's praying at home and he gets there and Saul just made the sacrifices himself. Samuel confronts him. He's like, what are you doing? And Saul says, hey, I need to do it in front of the people. And so Samuel says, you're fired. <laughs> the Lord's gonna take the kingdom from you. Remember, this is when Saul ripped Samuel's jacket and Samuel says, hey, the kingdom's gonna be ripped from you like you ripped my jacket. Samuel says, or Saul says, basically, would you pray for me, Samuel? And three times in that chapter, 1 Samuel 15, Samuel tells Saul, the Lord is not a man that he would change his mind. That's the balance of this. The Lord is not a man that he's gonna change his mind. If your prayer is designed to get God to change his mind, you're doing it wrong. If your prayer is rooted in the reality that God knows what he's going to do and knows what you need and it would be a sin for you not to pray, you're doing it right. The Lord loves your prayers. He welcomes them with open arms. He receives you to himself. He bends his ear to you because he knows exactly what you need and is eager to provide it. God, we're grateful for your word that you've routed, you've rooted your will for the world in our, in our hearts. We want to be in conformity with your perfect will. So Lord, use our prayers to bring about your will, knowing that our prayers won't change your will, but that you know exactly what we need. We don't want to heap up empty phrases. We want to be direct to you, Lord. 
pray that you'd be quick to answer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. For more information on our church or our current service times, go to ibc.church. For more information about the Master Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been a blessing to you, and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel with boldness.